This is the St. Charles History Chronicle, episode 2306. St. Charles and the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, with Paul Derica, Director of Exhibitions, Chicago History Museum. Brought to you by the St. Charles History Museum in St. Charles, Illinois. Good morning. I think it's still morning. It's not quite afternoon yet. This is Steve Gibson, president of the St. Charles History Museum, and this is the St. Charles History Chronicles podcast. I'm here today, as always, with my co-host, Eric Krupa, Collections Manager. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right on this great morning afternoon. Also joining us today on the phone is uh, Director of Exhibitions for the Chicago History Museum, Mr. Paul DeRica. Uh, good morning, Paul. Hi. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's Everything a pleasure o- to have you on there. Yeah. Cool. We got a good connection, everything going good, so we're going to keep our fingers crossed here uh, that nobody walks in the door and interrupts us. Uh, um, uh, I'm going to kind of turn this over to I'm going to turn this over to Eric because uh, Eric is pretty much the person who's done the footwork on this. And today, basically, we're going to talk about this is kind of an introduction to the next exhibition we've got going on, which is the uh, 1933 Chicago World's Fair. Uh, we're calling it Almost Another Century of Progress, St. Charles and the 1933 World's Fair. Right, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our next exhibition, as we've said, is on the 1933 Century of Progress, um, which is the fourth star on the Chicago flag, if anybody's wondering there. Uh, what we're focusing in on for this podcast is a little bit of a treat because we're going to be talking about the Homes of Tomorrow, which was the kind of futuristic portion of the fair, which showcased new building materials such as masonite, raw stone, and, uh, you know, just other kind of unique architectural quirks. Um, Paul, how familiar are you with the, uh, the homes of the future, basically, if you want to give a rundown of any of the unique quirks that you find interesting or your favorite house? If we could hear just sure. a little bit about that, yeah. So, uh, you know, what are collectively known as the homes of tomorrow were the kind of major feature of the home and industrial arts group uh, at the 1933 Century of Progress World's Fair. And uh, for those of listeners who are kind of curious as to where these buildings were situated in the fair, um, you know, much like its predecessor, the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition that was in uh, Jackson Park, very close to the lake, the 1933 Century of Progress was also in, in park space close to the lake, and visitors can still go and visit it today. Um, so. It's basically what is today's museum campus and, and south of that along northerly island. And you would have found the homes of tomorrow um, in the kind of main section of the fair that sort of extended south from today's soldier field. And it was actually very near an uh, army camp, interestingly enough, uh, and just a little bit north of the uh, General Motors building at East 31st. And in, in 1933, it was a, about 12 structures. And then, as many listeners probably know, one of the things that's unique about the, the Century of Progress is that it was a World's Fair that was extended an extra year into 1934. And there are some differences in the Homes of Tomorrow area between 33 and, and 34. Uh, some structures were added, a couple were removed. Um, some exterior details were changed and, and interiors redone. Uh, but, you know, among the structures that uh, made up the Homes of Tomorrow, that dozen or so expanding to about 14 and 34, you know, the ones that I find most interesting well, actually were are two structures. One that actually was called the House of Tomorrow, um, which was designed by an architect, architect pardon me, 
named George Fred Keck. Uh, Keck worked closely with his brother, who was an architect. And, you know, when we think of Chicago architecture today, particularly in, in the post-war decades, we think of, of towering figures like Mies van der Rohe and the sort of modernist aesthetic uh, that he brought to Chicago and that spread it to other uh, communities across the United States. But Keck in his design in many ways is anticipating this. Uh, the House of Tomorrow is a three-story structure um, almost entirely paneled in glass with a steel frame. It's got uh, no windows but 12 sides. And really, I think looking forward to a future um, that we haven't quite realized uh, on the, the lowest level and included a hangar for an airplane. So uh, Keck imagined a period of time uh, when people would have airplanes in the same way that they had automobiles. Yeah. And then in 34, he adds a second structure, which is actually not located uh, near where the other houses are. Um, and it's called the Crystal House. And it's kind of using similar principles. So it's a three-story structure, but it's an, a, essentially a, a giant glass box. So it has a kind of steel frame. And he leaves the frame exposed, which once again seems pretty forward-looking when you think about where architecture is headed um, and, and where it ends up in, in the post-war decades. And it just has like large, you know, plate glass on um, the different levels. It's tinted on the lowest level to allow for some privacy. And on the upper levels, uh, Venetian blinds are included. That's the same uh, setup in the House of Tomorrow. Um, but really, this, um, there's this emphasis on glass, steel, openness, and within a real kind of a centralization of um, various amenities and appliances and um, and basically having everything be as, as modern and up-to-date as, as possible in these kind of very future-looking homes. Yeah. Also, air conditioning is a yep. huge benefit. And that's not just uh, in Keck's structure, um, but in some of the other uh, houses of tomorrow or homes of tomorrow. Um, one thing that the designers emphasize over and over again is that these homes are, are air-conditioned. Um, even the entirely wood structure uh, that was made by... Uh, the Lumber Association. The Cyper, or the Cyper, not the log cabin, sorry about that. The American Forest and Products Lumber Industries Correct. House. Right. Sorry. <laughs> and that's another big point to, to make is that like a lot of the houses of tomorrow were really intended to kind of focus particular to, mm -hmm. to sort of highlight particular materials um, yeah. because of the people who were kind of funding them and, and, and behind them. So you had the, the Masonite House and you had the Rostone House and you had uh, the brick house that was produced yeah. by the you know the brick manufacturers and you know you had the one that was made entirely out of different kinds of, of wood um, but it still had central air which is interesting yeah we actually have a couple connections here um, we learned that one of our residents well he purchased some prefabricated model at the fair and brought it up to 5th street over 5th avenue over here but the uh, mm -hmm. more definite, I'm not 100% sure of what model that is or how that was affected. I haven't been able to match it up to anything. However, there was another resident here um, who actually, I feel, I believe more so, had one of the houses, at least a model that was manufactured, which would have been the General House Incorporated House. Howard T. Fisher was the architect of this house, and he basically was promoting it as a way for Sears to test run these kind of prefabricated houses. Uh, they were right. made completely out of steel there. Um, oh, shoot. I actually interviewed the uh, 
the nice, kind lady who lived in the house there at Sky, I believe it was Sky Hill Ranch was what it was called, or Sky Hill Farm uh, up over there. And she said that her dad would try to, you know, adjust things, make things, but he couldn't get a nail through anything because it was all steel. When the uh, heat in the winter time, she said constantly all the time, when the light would hit uh, basically and warm up these different panels, these metal panels, it would make a huge boom sound, she said. And this would happen randomly at any time of the day. And she said it constantly happened. <laughs> um, she described the house. We unfortunately weren't able to find any pictures, but her description really rings true with the one side having like all windows with two entrances. So from mm-hmm. her description there, I'm liking to assume that uh, the General House Incorporated house, one of the models, was probably purchased and built around here although i've got a record of about seven being built around the area with one still Mm -hmm. being around actually uh in one of the western suburbs i believe it's now like a store or something now was there a was there a hanger in the was there a hanger in that house no this house was much more a practical one story kind of house okay uh yeah and you make a a good point there and that you know i was sort of focusing on uh keck's house of tomorrow but most of the collectively as they were collectively known the homes of tomorrow there was a real emphasis on them being affordable and practical structures that could be mass reproduced and so we're generally talking about sort of single floor homes of around you know five rooms or so at most Um, but what's interesting too in the story that you just told is that heating and cooling seem to be the two problems whether the were elaborate structures like the House of Tomorrow or, or more modest ones like mm-hmm. the house that you just described, the heating and cooling presented a real challenge for some of these structures. And that remained Especially true when of some tomorrow. of them moved to other locations or, you know, they had multiple units uh, based on the same design fabricated. Uh, so they weren't able to quite, you know, work out all of the bugs um, from the design. In terms of cost, I mean, that one was one of the more affordable Interestingly enough, the House of Tomorrow is actually one of the more mid-range structures. The most expensive of all of the homes of tomorrow was the what is today known as the Florida Tropical House, uh, which in 1933 dollars would have cost about 25,000 to uh, fabricate, which put it well ahead of, of any of the other uh, buildings. Even though there's nothing terribly, um, you know, innovative about the design, other than that it kind of allows easy movement between inside and outside and like some of the other houses really kind of places an emphasis on creating a, a roof that is accessible and usable as a kind of terrace, uh, terraced space. Um, but that was the one that interestingly enough uh, ended up costing the most money to, to make. I've got a, a question, a little bit of context here because I think a lot of people don't realize the, the change that's going on in the United States and things at the right. time. So help me just put this in, in context. So 1933 is um, the end of prohibition, beginning of the year, right? It's, um, was it 33 or 32? I can't remember. It was 33. So, and it actually happens yeah. in, in stages. So uh, April of 1933, uh, you know, part of the Volstead Act is, is repealed and 3.2% beer is legalized which is a huge okay. boon for the fair. I mean, they have oh, yeah. like oh, yes. the old Heidelberg <laughs> restaurant. They've got places like Paps and Schlitz, you know, have pavilions at the fair. And then December of 1933 is when uh, the 18th Amendment is, is fully repealed and, and replaced 
with the, the 21st Amendment. And what is like the uh, economy like? I know we're are we coming out of the good. depression. And that's probably we something as we're, we're sitting here talking about money. I, I should have said that. So while planning for the century of progress, you know, began in in the late 20s before the stock market crash of, of October 1929. You know, the fair itself doesn't open until uh, 1933. And at that point, you know, the country's you know right smack dab in, in the middle of, of the Great Depression. And mm-hmm. and that's one thing too that the houses of tomorrow are really trying to kind of mm-hmm. grapple with, which is you know how can they provide what seem like economically you know sound structures um, that can address very real housing needs, um, but also you know be within the um, purchasing the diminished purchasing power of, of most Americans at that point. And then the other thing that strikes me is we're pretty much, I mean, Europe is already kind of in turmoil. We're kind of, I mean, the storm clouds are on the horizon, as they'd say. And I think it's um, it's interesting that even in the light of that, it seems as you're talking about this, that the World's Fair is made as practical as possible. If that's if you can say that with something this big and complicated, that I mean, these homes are all made to convince consumers that these are within your reach, and right. and the the entire fair is full of things that bring the world to to Chicago and things like that. So um, it it strikes me that um, I, I've got a book that I got a long time ago called "Wasn't the Future Wonderful?" and it's full of all these popular science and popular mechanic art about uh, how we'll all be flying in helicopters and planes and have nuclear reactors for furnaces and all these kinds of things. And, and none of that happened, but yet isn't that really what kind of made things like life that you had at the day was very livable because this is just over the horizon and here it is right in front of you. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, some of the things that you, you do find in the houses of tomorrow did end up becoming commonplace. So once again, oh, to go yeah. back to like central air, so, you know, as you're kind of reading articles describing the different houses that appeared in, in different papers of the time, you know, they're talking about how, like, there'll be a point where air conditioning will be as common to the, you know, the house as central heating and, you know, indoor plumbing is today, which it's good that by the 1930s, uh, indoor plumbing was, was common and, and central heating. But the fact that, you know, um, that air conditioning would be another one of those innovations. A weird thing, too, is just having uh, multiple telephones in your house. So one thing that I discovered kind of going back and, and doing some research to prepare for this and looking at old newspapers is that uh, the Illinois Bell Company um, basically supplied a lot of the different houses with phones. And one of the things that they were emphasizing is that you could have, like, multiple phones within your home. So in the House of Tomorrow, for example, there was a phone in the kitchen. <laughs> As well as like in, in some of the more common areas, um, yeah. like the living room or, or, or where you would expect to find a phone at that point in time. But a, a phone in the kitchen was like revolutionary. Whereas, <laughs> well, I mean, today, right, we all carry our phones with us. but um, No you know, party lines anymore. Right, yeah. But <laughs> even, you know, if you think about houses in, in you know, the post-war decades, the idea of having kind of multiple uh, phones um, scattered across the floor plan was, was common, right? Growing up, we had a phone in our kitchen in the house as well as in a couple other places. Another uh, feature of the House of Tomorrow, actually, it was furnished by a local company called the Howell Company here. Right. Uh, it was chrome, tubular, tubular steel furniture. Uh, it was actually produced in Geneva up until 1934. Hmm. And then because of their success at the fair, and they actually provided stuff for other concessions as well, 
Uh, but because of their success at the fair, they actually had to move out here into the old cable piano factory, which is a, a fond place of memories of, from many in the St. Charles area. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the interiors were all like very intentionally designed. Um, a mixture of styles. The, the Rothstone House had furniture provided by the Toby Furniture Company, which was a longtime furniture manufacturer in Chicago, who, you know, their history extended back um, from even before the time of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. And they would also run ads. Uh, the, the different uh, companies that um, provided the furniture and other uh, interior design elements would, you know, highlight the fact that they participated in the century of progress in this fashion oh, yeah. by uh, basically decorating the, the homes of tomorrow. Yeah, if we want to go back to other modern and futuristic, I think maybe one of the most uh, up-to-date recent ones in the House of Tomorrow actually would be that uh, kind of eye in the, what was it, the, uh, <laughs> whatever it was, it was like the automatic eye that would be able to kind of see if somebody's at your front door, right. kind of like a ring camera today's in today's world, and they had motion sensors to open right. cabinets and stuff. There were the motion sensors, and I can't believe I forgot about that. I mentioned the airplane garage but it had a um, garage opener now the technology yeah. didn't work quite the way uh, ours I mean the ones that probably most of us are used to today but I mean the concept was similar and even that right the idea of an automatic garage opener yeah. that you could activate from your car or airplane um, was something that seemed <laughs> fantastic in, in 33 but it's commonplace today um, so we talked about uh, three homes so far I'm trying to keep mm. track in my head or there's uh, a lot in, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few there. And so probably the ones about, that yeah. well, most listeners would be familiar with are the ones that, you know, ended up surviving um, the fair because they ended up being uh, transported to uh, Beverly Shores, Indiana, where, where people can still visit them today. Yeah. Tickets sell out fast, though. It's a yeah. one-day-a-year extravaganza kind of thing. Yeah. From right. what I recall, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, you know, five of the structures exist. Um what is now the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. And it's the House of Tomorrow that we've been talking about. It's the Florida Tropical House. You've got um, the Amco Faro House, which is one that I find really interesting. Um, you've got the Cypress Log Cabin, which Eric, I believe you, you mentioned yep. earlier. Um, and then finally, the, the Rostone House, which <clears throat> interestingly enough, isn't really covered anymore in Rostone except for a couple small areas because despite being pitched as being a material that would last seemingly forever it, it, it didn't so how about uh, any of these materials yeah. you right. know kind of like masonite true. right yeah <laughs> yeah um okay so um another thing that comes to mind is so were these houses built and designed um, for how they ended up being sold after the fair and then used? Or or is that something that was kind of a bonus that came as, as we were going through this whole process? Well, they were really kind of model houses, right? So they were meant to just to serve that function. But people did purchase them after the fair was closed um, and, you know, attended to, I mean, people lived in them. So, I mean, some of them were built well enough to at least survive for a time yeah. after the fair. Uh, not all of them. Some were even intentionally destroyed. So, you know, the, um, I mentioned the Brick Manufacturer Association of America's Brick House, and uh, they intentionally 
torched it at, at the end of the fair just to demonstrate the durability of the material. Um, that was another thing, too, that kind of happened throughout the run of the fairs. And so they intentionally set that on fire to kind of demonstrate the durability of, of the bricks and, and their kind of fire retardant properties, but it still ended up, you know, destroying the, the structure. And, and that was a thing, too, that happened through the, the duration of 33 and 34. So there were all of these kind of tests that were being made of, of the different model houses that really kind of uh, show off the um, capacity of, of the material to withstand various weights and uh, weather and pressures and, and so forth. Uh, but no, I mean, the ones that ended up getting transported to, to Beverly Shores in uh, Northwest Indiana weren't necessarily intended to, to last forever. Um, but that said, they still ended up being, I mean, private homes uh, for a long time. The other thing that people could do too is with, with some of the houses, particularly some of the, the smaller ones is, you know, they had plans for sale that people could uh, purchase at the fair and then go back to their respective communities, place an order and have the, the homes delivered to them, particularly any of the smaller designs that, um, made use of a lot of prefabricated components. Yeah, I know. Uh, speaking about that and lasting and long-lasting and preservation type issues, I know in 2018 uh, in Wilmette actually they discovered that the one of the original Strand Steel Good Housekeeping Strand mm. Steel yeah. homes was actually still over there. Hmm. I know that they uh, tore it down, but they were able to salvage some of the panels. And uh, if anyone was wondering. <laughs> What happened to that? I'm kind of curious as well. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you know anything about it, Paul. No, sorry, I didn't. That's, <laughs> that's totally that. all right. <laughs> I know about the original um, structure. I wonder which one it was because that was one. You know where I mentioned there was some yeah, yeah, variations and between 33 and 34, and one of those two. There originally were like two of those houses in 33, and then one of them was removed for 34. Um, and it had been purchased by a, you know a private buyer, so I wonder if that was the if that was the one that ended up. Yeah, that would be it. interesting. I'll have to do a little bit more digging. I mean, that's the fun thing too, right? Is you know you start oh yes down this path <laughs> of research, and then you're always kind of uncovering new new things. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. bumping into everything, and you know just seeing stuff that's still around and right. existing is kind well, one of unique. Thing, you know, <laughs> I was surprised to learn because um, you know I was focusing on the homes of tomorrow, but then. You know, I knew about Bartlett and some of Robert Bartlett, I should say, who's the person who kind of tried to develop Beverly Shores. He had named it after his daughter and who had sort of purchased the, actually it was six originally, uh, Homes of Tomorrow to kind of have as a tourist attraction. They followed that up purchasing a colonial village that was added yeah. to the world's fair. That was a 34 one. And 34, right. right. And so he had all of these structures that were kind of looking to the future, but then he also purchased all of these structures <laughs> that were replicas of, you know, famous historical American buildings, everything from Mount Vernon to the, the old North church and then yeah. the house of the seven gables. And, and those structures um, ended up meeting with a, a range of, of fates. Um, yeah, some of them that, survived at least into the 1950s and, and early 60s. But So the Drum and Bugle Corps here in St. Charles was actually rather popular at the 1934 fair. They uh, won the first uh, competition at the air races, which was held kind of off-site of the fair. But it was a big deal, and it brought uh, the public back to believing that aircraft could be safe and still kind of push the boundaries of stuff. Um, another one they were invited back to play at, the uh, Pantheon, when it opened, actually. And they represented the entire American Legion. 
The Pantheon was basically a huge building that 6,000 people are painted in it. It's like 500 feet, 40 feet high, something like that. It was painted throughout World War One, and it was basically the symbol of, you know, American veterans at the time on that kind of side. So they were given the, you know, honor of doing that. And then they also were given the honor of playing all over the Midway. <laughs> they got to play in front of the Havilene Thermometer, too, as well, and a bunch of different other places. And they were invited back where they won the Drum and Bugle Corps competition in 1934 as well, which we still have the trophy of uh, prominently on display here. There's a couple of little anecdotes about the yeah. Crystal House, which was added in um, oh, yeah, yeah. 34, also designed by George Fred Keck. Because yeah, they, uh, uh, they actually changed uh, his House of the Future, too, and they write for 34, like he kind of lost ownership of that, correct? I, yeah, and they added copper panels to the, the House of tomorrow on the exterior and redid the the interior um but the, the crystal house you know in the summer of 34 one of the more prominent visitors to century progress is the first lady eleanor roosevelt uh, and she claims that she's just coming on vacation and just wants to be a private citizen but of course she gets kind of followed by journalists uh her entire time at the fair and one of the places that she visits is the Crystal House, which is this, um, you know, steel-framed, basically glass structure uh, that was designed in, in part by George Fred Keck. And while she's in there talking to, to people, she makes some sort of quip about how, um, you know, she wishes that, you know, the entire Republican National Committee could perhaps take up residence in that house, right? Because it's a glass house. Because <laughs> maybe they would be, uh, you know, uh, reluctant to be, be throwing stones. Uh, so a little bit of political humor there. That's um, really funny. <laughs> but, uh, but it's also where uh, our Buckminster Fuller would bring his uh, Dymaxion uh, automobile. So it would be oh, displayed yeah, yeah. outside the, the Crystal House. So these two kind of t um, emblems of, of modernity of, of really of, of the future are kind of exhibited side by side. And then for those who are unfamiliar with our Buckminster Fuller's um, Dymaxion oh, yeah. automobile, as it was a three-wheeled structure that looked almost like a, um, I mean, it had almost kind of like a kind of cigar shape. And there was like a, you know, periscope that you could feature into it. It was a very kind of long sort of narrow chrome car with the three wheels. And unfortunately, it had gone to a very bad accident uh, on Lakeshore Drive during the time of a, the fair in, in 34. Um, I never did ended up going into turn? mass production. Oh, sorry, what was that? Did it not make the turn there on Lakeshore Drive? That was basically <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, that was part of the problems. Um, I mean, Fuller would kind of fabricate the story to suggest that his car and another car were in a, a race on the drive, and that led to an accident. But it seems that in all likelihood... <laughs> Uh, based on some uh, research that people have done more recently, that the car, and, and you know, going back to accounts actually from the 1930s and not just the way Fuller would tell the story in later years, that really the car kind of ran into some problems um, while making an adjustment on the drive and, and turning, and that actually caused <laughs> it to roll into um, traffic that was kind of going in the same direction. But, uh, oh, geez. Yeah, it was sad. There were like three people in the automobile, yeah. and, and one of them ended up, perishing the, the driver oh geez so, yeah and it you know it, interestingly enough though it didn't kind of lead because i don't think the story was covered uh very heavily at the time it didn't lead to a complete end of, of the project um 
but the automobile as he envisioned it would, would never be produced in any sort of significant number. Cigar with a fin. Basically, right. So, yeah, and then he had a dream of it flying at some point, so I guess it would have been the perfect car for uh, Keck's House of Tomorrow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> with its airplane hanging together. around the lower level. That's right. Yeah. What, what could have been yeah. right. in the future. We Hel- could be helipad possible. on the roof, and, and you're right. all set. Um, so in terms of legacy, then, if we can kind of talk about it, because I think of, uh, I was on the Historic Preservation Commission here in St. Charles, and you see how certain things, Frank Lloyd Wright specifically, the prairie-style homes, are, became really you know, popular, but each style of home has its day, it seems like, Gothic and Craftsman and all of these, you know, uh, uh, different uh, styles of homes become. But the thing that doesn't seem to me to take off, at least in the 1930s and 1940s, are these super futuristic things. I mean, the next kind of big thing that I think of is the mid-century modern stuff that comes out in the 50s, which couldn't have been any more different from the the risk-taking of... of, you know the the stuff that they saw at the world's fair so is it is it really does it end up being the the ingenuity and the the engineering that goes into the interiors and those kind of things get that gets incorporated and the outside kind of becomes left to the future is, is that what it looks like to me yeah i mean i think that the most immediate impact is really kind of on interior design and on improved appliances and improved like heating and cooling systems exterior design takes longer but once again, you have to kind of put yourself back in the moment. So 1930s, Great Depression, by the early 1940s, uh, the United States is involved in the global conflict, World War II. So, you know, it's not really until those post-war decades that architects began returning to some of the design principles that were first explored in, you know, at, at events like the 33 Century of Progress World's Fair or yeah. the slightly later, 1939, New York's World's Fair, yeah. and, and began yeah, was, uh, up, yeah. applying them once again. So, you know, those kind of two global events really, you know, impact um, the history of, of architecture and, and design. So, yeah, I mean, I think the kind of immediate um, effect and perhaps the most lasting legacy has to do with the way in which these spaces kind of changed interiors. But there, there still is something to be said for the way in which they... Um, impacted later design on exteriors as well. I mean, definitely the sort of open floor plans that you find in some of these houses uh, with a real strong emphasis on, um, you know, floor to ceiling glass and, and windows. I mean, that's something that you'll, you'll find in, in future decades. Um, the idea uh, board, of kind of spaces. Board and batten or or right. uh, those kinds of yeah materials out there. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I remember they, is it... Yeah. Are, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I remember as a kid going to the Museum of Science and Industry, and a large portion of the exhibit was modern appliances. I right. mean, the, the kitchen of tomorrow, I think, was still there in the building that, you know, basically that was a, a and it's funny today, I don't know that we would think the same thing, you know, it just doesn't it sit in the yeah. cultural consciousness that, hey, this is the kitchen of tomorrow. You know, yeah. a lot of people could imagine no kitchen tomorrow, right? Right. So, well, that's where the roots came from in 33, but in 39, it was much more the Futurama kind of type right. stuff was much more popularized. And that's when things really took off in right. a way, but we can trace those roots back to places like the house of tomorrow and stuff like that with those wonderful quirky inventions that became staples and some that didn't oh yeah paul uh we also heard that you guys have a new exhibit coming into town they're actually on the 20th right that's right 
So Saturday, May 20th, uh, the Chicago History Museum is opening a new exhibition, Back Home, Polish Chicago. And it tells the story of the Polish community in the city from the middle of the 19th century all the way up through today. Um, most of what visitors will see are uh, objects that are being loaned to the museum. So they're coming from families uh, with connections, you know, going all the way back to the 1850s, um, but also people who arrived just within the last decade. Yeah. Great. Well, Paul, uh, uh, Paul Derica, Director of Exhibitions for the Chicago History Museum, um, we really want to thank you for talking to us today. This is uh, fantastic, and I think everybody's going to find this pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially as a tie-in to you the You have such exhibition. great detail and in-depth knowledge of this. We really appreciate you kind of bringing it in and being able to speak about it so eloquently. So yeah, this was a yeah. lot of fun. Thanks so much. And uh, oh, yeah, looking forward you. to coming out to St. Charles and, and seeing your exhibition. Oh, thank you so much. That'd yeah. be fantastic. Anytime. Great. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Okay, yeah. have a good weekend. Have a great Take rest care. of the day. All right, you okay. too. Yeah. Bye. 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 And we'd like to thank all you listeners out there for tuning in today. Uh, Steve and I will be continuing the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. Uh, we will also be updating you guys with events coming up around the 1933 exhibition. Uh, it is not too late to start signing up for the gala. In 2023, we will be featuring the 1933 90th anniversary of basically the St. Charles History Museum here. Wow, it all comes together all, yeah, in, it's all in crazy. one place. Um, how does that happen? Hmm. Yeah. It's almost as if we were a consequence of the <laughs> fair and centennial. You could, hey, I don't know, maybe we'll find something out about that if we come to the exhibition here at the, at the uh, museum. <laughs> um, and, and Eric, thanks very much. Thanks for uh, connecting with Paul and, and bringing him on oh, board here. Of course, here. he was, was a fantastic, fantastic, knowledgeable man. A lot of fun. Uh, we'll be back with another podcast hopefully in a couple of weeks. Um, in the meantime, I don't have any other events to let you know about in the short term, uh, but come on in and see us at the museum. We're open Thursday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, gift shop is open. We got a couple of new things in the gift shop, including a BPA-free water bottle with uh, a nice logo on it for everybody. So stop in, check that out, and uh, until we see you next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. This content is copyright 2023, St. Charles History Museum, all rights reserved. Additional information on this episode and other podcast episodes is available at stcmuseum.org forward slash podcast.